calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, I'm your host, Alison Larkin, and you're listening to The Jane Austen Podcast, presented by Realm. This is Emma, Episode 6. In this episode, you'll be hearing Chapters 10 and 11. Written by Jane Austen, read by Alison Larkin. That's me. Enjoy. Chapter 10 Though now the middle of December, there had yet been no weather to prevent the young ladies from tolerably regular exercise, and on the morrow Emma had a charitable visit to pay to a poor sick family who lived a little way out of Highbury. Their road to this detached cottage was down Vicarage Lane, a lane leading at right angles from the broad though irregular main street of the place, and as may be inferred, containing the blessed abode of Mr. Elton. A few inferior dwellings were first to be passed, and then, about a quarter of a mile down the lane, rose the vicarage, an old and not very good house, almost as close to the road as it could be. It had no advantage of situation, but had been very much smartened up by the present proprietor, and, such as it was, there could be no possibility of the two friends passing it without a slackened pace and observing eyes. Emma's remark was, There it is. There go you and your riddle book one of these days. Harriet's was, Oh, what a sweet house. How very beautiful. There are the yellow curtains that Miss Nash admires so much. I do not often walk this way now, said Emma as they proceeded, but then there will be an inducement and I shall gradually get intimately acquainted with all the hedges, gates, pools and pollards of this part of Highbury. Harriet, she found, had never in her life been within side the vicarage and her curiosity to see it was so extreme that, considering exteriors and probabilities, Emma could only class it as a proof of love, with Mr. Elton's seeing ready wit in her. "'I wish we could contrive it,' said she. 
but I cannot think of any tolerable pretense for going in. No servant that I want to inquire about of his housekeeper, no message from my father. She pondered, but could think of nothing. After a mutual silence of some minutes, Harriet thus began again. I do so wonder, Miss Woodhouse, that you should not be married, or going to be married, so charming as you are. Emma laughed, and replied, My being charming, Harriet, is not quite enough to induce me to marry. I must find other people charming, one other person at least, and I am not only not going to be married at present, but have very little intention of ever marrying at all. Ah, so you say, but I cannot believe it. I must see somebody very superior to anyone I have seen yet to be tempted. Mr. Elton, you know, recollecting herself, is out of the question, and I do not wish to see any such person. I would rather not be tempted. I cannot really change for the better. If I were to marry, I must expect to repent it. Dear me, it is so odd to hear a woman talk so. I have none of the usual inducements of women to marry. Were I to fall in love, indeed, it would be a different thing. But I never have been in love. It is not my way or my nature, and I do not think I ever shall. And without love, I am sure I should be a fool to change such a situation as mine. Fortune I do not want. Employment I do not want. Consequence I do not want. I believe few married women are half as much mistress of their husband's house as I am of Hartfield, and never, never could I expect to be so truly beloved and important, so always first and always right in any man's eyes as I am in my father's. But then to be an old maid at last like Miss Bates. That is as formidable an image as you could present, Harriet, and if I thought I should ever be like Miss Bates so silly, so satisfied, so smiling, so prosing, so undistinguishing and unfastidious, and so apt to tell everything relative to everybody about me I would marry tomorrow. But between us, I am convinced, there never can be any likeness except in being unmarried. But still, you will be an old maid, and that's so dreadful. Never mind, Harriet, I shall not be a poor old maid and it is poverty only which makes celibacy contemptible to a generous public. A single woman with a very narrow income must be a ridiculous, disagreeable old maid, the proper sport of boys and girls. But a single woman of good fortune is always respectable and may be as sensible and pleasant as anybody else. And the distinction is not quite so much against candour and common sense of the world as appears at first, for a very narrow income has a tendency to contract the mind and sour the temper. Those who can barely live and who live perforce in a very small and generally very inferior society may well be illiberal and cross. This does not apply, however, to Miss Bates. She is only too good-natured and too silly to suit me. But in general she is very much to the taste of everybody, though single and though poor. Poverty certainly has not contracted her mind. I really believe if she had only a shilling in the world she would be very likely to give away sixpence of it, and nobody is afraid of her. That is a great charm. Dear me. But what shall you do? How shall you employ yourself when you grow old? If I know myself, Harriet, mine is an active, busy mind with a great many independent resources, 
and I do not perceive why I should be more in want of employment at forty or fifty than one and twenty. Woman's usual occupations of hand and mind will be as open to me then as they are now, or with no important variation. If I draw less, I shall read more. If I give up music, I shall take to carpet work. And as for objects of interest, objects for the affections, which is in truth the great point of inferiority, the want of which is really the great evil to be avoided in not marrying, I shall be very well off with all the children of a sister I love so much to care about. There will be enough of them in all probability to supply every sort of sensation that declining life can need. There will be enough for every hope and every fear, and though my attachment to none can equal that of a parent, it suits my ideas of comfort better than what is warmer and blinder. My nephews and nieces. I shall often have a niece with me. Do you know Miss Bates's niece? That is, I know you must have seen her a hundred times, but are you acquainted? Oh, yes. We are always forced to be acquainted whenever she comes to Highbury. By the by, that is almost enough to put one out of conceit with a niece. Heaven forbid, at least, that I should ever bore people half so much about all the Knightleys together as she does about Jane Fairfax. One is sick of the very name of Jane Fairfax. Every letter from her is read forty times over. Her compliments to all friends go round and round again, and if she does but send her aunt the pattern of a stomacher, or knit a pair of garters for her grandmother, one hears of nothing else for a month. I wish Jane Fairfax very well, but she tires me to death. They were now approaching the cottage, and all idle topics were superseded. Emma was very compassionate and the distresses of the poor were as sure of relief from her personal attention and kindness, her counsel and her patience, as from her purse. She understood their ways, could allow for their ignorance and their temptations, had no romantic expectations of extraordinary virtue from those for whom education had done so little, entered into their troubles with ready sympathy and always gave her assistance, with as much intelligence as good will. In the present instance, it was sickness and poverty together which she came to visit, and after remaining there as long as she could give comfort or advice, she quitted the cottage with such an impression of the scene as made her say to Harriet, as they walked away, These are the sights, Harriet, to do one good. How trifling they make everything else appear. I feel now as if I could think of nothing but these poor creatures all the rest of the day. And yet, who can say how soon it may all vanish from my mind? Very true, said Harriet. Poor creatures. One can think of nothing else. And really, I do not think the impression will soon be over, said Emma, as she crossed the low hedge and tottering footstep, which ended the narrow, slippery path through the cottage garden and brought them into the lane again. I do not think it will stopping to look once more at all the outward wretchedness of the place, and recall the still greater within. Oh, dear no, said her companion. They walked on. The lane made a slight bend, and when that bend was passed, Mr. Elton was immediately in sight, and so near as to give Emma time only to say farther, Ah, Harriet! Here comes a very sudden trial of our stability in good thoughts. Well, smiling, 
I hope it may be allowed that if compassion has produced exertion and relief to the sufferers, it has done all that is truly important. If we feel for the wretched enough to do all we can for them, the rest is empty sympathy, only distressing to ourselves. Harriet could just answer, Oh, dear, yes, before the gentleman joined them. The wants and sufferings of the poor family, however, were the first subject on meeting. He had been going to call on them. His visit he would now defer, but they had a very interesting parley about what could be done and should be done. Mr. Elton then turned back to accompany them. To fall in with each other on such an errand as this, thought Emma, to meet in a charitable scheme. This will bring a great increase of love on each side. I should not wonder if it were to bring on the declaration. It must, if I were not here. I wish I were anywhere else. Anxious to separate herself from them as far as she could, she soon afterwards took possession of a narrow footpath, a little raised on one side of the lane, leaving them together in the main road. But she had not been there two minutes when she found that Harriet's habits of dependence and imitation were bringing her up too, and that, in short, they would both be soon after her. This would not do. She immediately stopped under pretense of having some alteration to make in the lacing of her half-boot, and, stooping down in complete occupation of the footpath, begged them to have the goodness to walk on, and she would follow in half a minute. They did as they were desired, and by the time she judged it reasonable to have done with her boot, she had the comfort of farther delay in her power, being overtaken by a child from the cottage, setting out according to orders with her pitcher, to fetch broth from Hartfield. To walk by the side of this child and talk to and question her was the most natural thing in the world or would have been the most natural had she been acting just then without design, and by this means the others were still able to keep ahead without any obligation of waiting for her. She gained on them, however, involuntarily. The child's pace was quick and theirs rather slow, and she was the more concerned at it from their being evidently in a conversation which interested them. Mr. Elton was speaking with animation, Harriet listening with a very pleased attention, and Emma, having sent the child on, was beginning to think how she might draw back a little more, when they both looked around and she was obliged to join them. Mr. Elton was still talking, still engaged in some interesting detail, and Emma experienced some disappointment when she found that he was only giving his fair companion an account of the yesterday's party at his friend Cole's, and that she was come in herself for the Stilton cheese, the North Wiltshire, the butter, the celery, the beetroot, and all the dessert. This would soon have led to something better, of course, was her consoling reflection, Anything interests between those who love, and anything will serve as introduction to what is near the heart, if I could but have kept longer away. They now walked on together quietly, till within view of the vicarage pales, when a sudden resolution of at least getting Harriet into the house made her again find something very much amiss about her boot and fall behind to arrange it once more. She then broke the lace off short and, dexterously throwing it into a ditch, was presently obliged to entreat them to stop, 
and acknowledged her inability to put herself to rights so as to be able to walk home in tolerable comfort. Part of my lace is gone, said she, and I do not know how I am to contrive. I really am a most troublesome companion to you both, but I hope I am not often so ill-equipped. Mr. Elton, I must beg leave to stop at your house and ask your housekeeper for a bit of ribbon or string or anything just to keep my boot on. Mr. Elton looked all happiness at this proposition, and nothing could exceed his alertness and attention in conducting them into his house and endeavouring to make everything appear to advantage. The room they were taken into was the one he chiefly occupied, and looking forwards. Behind it was another with which it immediately communicated. The door between them was open, and Emma passed into it with the housekeeper to receive her assistance in the most comfortable manner. She was obliged to leave the door ajar as she found it, but she fully intended that Mr. Elton should close it. It was not closed, however. It still remained ajar, but by engaging the housekeeper in incessant conversation, she hoped to make it practicable for him to choose his own subject in the adjoining room. For ten minutes, she could hear nothing but herself. It could be protracted no longer. She was then obliged to be finished and make her appearance. The lovers were standing together at one of the windows. It had a most favourable aspect, and for half a minute Emma felt the glory of having schemed successfully. But it would not do. He had not come to the point. He had been most agreeable, most delightful. He had told Harriet that he had seen them go by and had purposely followed them. Other little gallantries and illusions had been dropped, but nothing serious. Cautious, very cautious, thought Emma. He advances inch by inch and will hazard nothing till he believes himself secure. Still, however, though everything had not been accomplished by her ingenious device, she could not but flatter herself that it had been the occasion of much present enjoyment to both and must be leading them forward to the great event. While I do really enjoy the convenience of streaming at home, there is something really special about the experience of going to the movie theater. And if you're like me and find yourself going a couple times a month or the cost of movie tickets has kept you from going as often as you'd like, Regal Unlimited just makes sense. Regal Unlimited is the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. I love going to Regal theaters. I personally have gone twice in the last three weeks and so this movie subscription pass is truly perfect. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions and when you want to watch a movie in a premium format like 4DX, IMAX, RPX, or ScreenX, your Regal Unlimited memberships gets you into those premium experiences at a reduced cost. And with Regal Unlimited, you'll also save on snacks, which is personally a must when in the theater. Members get 10% off all non-alcoholic concession items. So if you're planning to see two movies this month, you need to join Regal Unlimited. Sign up now in the Regal app or on regmovies.com unlimited, R-E-G movies.com unlimited. When you sign up, use code Austin 024 and earn 10% off a three-month subscription. 
Again, Regal Unlimited is the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So if you're planning to see more than one movie this month, Regal Unlimited is the way to save money on your tickets and your snacks and just have that magical experience in a movie theater. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 11 Mr. Elton must now be left to himself. It was no longer in Emma's power to superintend his happiness or quicken his measures. The coming of her sister's family was so very near at hand that first in anticipation and then in reality it became henceforth her prime object of interest, and during the ten days of their stay at Hartfield it was not to be expected, she did not herself expect that anything beyond occasional fortuitous assistance could be afforded by her to the lovers. They might advance rapidly if they would, however. They must advance somehow or other, whether they would or no. She hardly wished to have more leisure for them. There are people who the more you do for them, the less they will do for themselves. Mr. and Mrs. John Knightley, from having been longer than usual absent from Surrey, were exciting, of course, rather more than the usual interest. Till this year, every long vacation since their marriage had been divided between Hartfield and Donwell Abbey. But all the holidays of this autumn had been given to sea-bathing for the children, and it was therefore many months since they had been seen in a regular way by their Surrey connections, or seen at all by Mr. Woodhouse, who could not be induced to get so far as London, even for poor Isabella's sake, and who consequently was now most nervously and apprehensively happy in forestalling this too short visit. He thought much of the evils of the journey for her, and not a little of the fatigues of his own horses and coachmen, who were to bring some of the party the last half of the way. But his alarms were needless, the sixteen miles being happily accomplished and Mr. and Mrs. John Knightley, their five children and a competent number of nursery maids, all reaching Hartfield in safety. The bustle and joy of such an arrival, the many to be talked to, welcomed, encouraged and variously dispersed and disposed of, produced a noise and confusion which his nerves could not have borne under any other cause, nor have endured much longer even for this. But the ways of Hartfield, and the feelings of her father, 
were so respected by Mrs. John Knightley that in spite of maternal solicitude for the immediate enjoyment of her little ones, and for their having instantly all the liberty and attendance, all the eating and drinking and sleeping and playing which they could possibly wish for without the smallest delay, the children were never allowed to be long a disturbance to him either in themselves or in any restless attendance on them. Mrs. John Knightley was a pretty, elegant little woman, of gentle, quiet manners, and a disposition remarkably amiable and affectionate. Wrapped up in her family, a devoted wife, a doting mother, and so tenderly attached to her father and sister that, but for these higher ties, a warmer love might have seemed impossible. She could never see a fault in any of them. She was not a woman of strong understanding or any quickness, and with this resemblance of her father she inherited also much of his constitution, was delicate in her own health, over-careful of that of her children, had many fears and many nerves, and was as fond of her own Mr. Wingfield in town as her father could be of Mr. Perry. They were alike, too, in a general benevolence of temper and a strong habit of regard for every old acquaintance. Mr. John Knightley was a tall, gentlemanlike, and very clever man. Rising in his profession, domestic and respectable in his private character, but with reserved manners which prevented his being generally pleasing, and capable of being sometimes out of humour. He was not an ill-tempered man, not so often unreasonably cross as to deserve such a reproach, but his temper was not his great perfection, and indeed with such a worshipping wife it was hardly possible that any natural defects in it should not be increased. The extreme sweetness of her temper must hurt his. He had all the clearness and quickness of mind which she wanted, and he could sometimes act an ungracious or say a severe thing. He was not a great favourite with his fair sister-in-law. Nothing wrong in him escaped her. She was quick in feeling the little injuries to Isabella which Isabella never felt herself. Perhaps she might have passed over more had his manners been flattering to Isabella's sister, but they were only those of a calmly kind brother and friend, without praise and without blindness. But hardly any degree of personal compliment could have made her regardless of that greatest fault of all in her eyes, which he sometimes fell into, the want of respectful forbearance towards her father. There he had not always the patience that could have been wished. Mr. Woodhouse's peculiarities and fidgetiness were sometimes provoking him to a rational remonstrance or sharp retort equally ill-bestowed. It did not often happen, for Mr. John Knightley had really a great regard for his father-in-law and generally a strong sense of what was due to him, but it was too often for Emma's charity especially as there was all the pain of apprehension frequently to be endured, though the offence came not. The beginning, however, of every visit displayed none but the properest feelings, and this being of necessity so short might be hoped to pass away in unsullied cordiality. They had not been long seated and composed, when Mr. Woodhouse, with a melancholy shake of the head and a sigh, called his daughter's attention to the sad change at Hartfield since she had been there last. Ah, my dear, 
said he. Poor Miss Taylor, it is a grievous business. Oh, yes, sir, cried she with ready sympathy. How you must miss her, and dear Emma, too. What a dreadful loss to you both. I have been so grieved for you. I could not imagine how you could possibly do without her. It is a sad change indeed. But I hope she is pretty well, sir. Pretty well, my dear, I hope pretty well. I do not know but that the place agrees with her tolerably. Mr. John Knightley here asked Emma quietly whether there were any doubts of the heir of Randalls. Oh, no, none in the least. I never saw Mrs. Weston better in my life, never looking so well. Papa is only speaking his own regret. Very much to the honour of both, was the handsome reply. And do you see her, sir, tolerably often? asked Isabella in the plaintive tone which just suited her father. Mr. Woodhouse hesitated. Not near so often, my dear, as I could wish. Oh, Papa, we have missed seeing them but one entire day since they married. Either in the morning or evening of every day, excepting one, have we seen either Mr. Weston or Mrs. Weston, and generally both, either at Randall's or here. And as you may suppose, Isabella, most frequently here. They are very, very kind in their visits. Mr. Weston is really as kind as herself. Papa, if you speak in that melancholy way, you will be giving Isabella a false idea of us all. Everybody must be aware that Miss Taylor must be missed, but everybody ought also to be assured that Mr. and Mrs. Weston do really prevent our missing her by any means to the extent we ourselves anticipated which is the exact truth. Just as it should be, said Mr. John Knightley, and just as I hoped it was from your letters. Her wish of showing you attention could not be doubted, and his being a disengaged and social man makes it all easy. I have been always telling you, my love, that I had no idea of the change being so very material to Hartfield as you apprehended. And now you have Emma's account. I hope you will be satisfied. Why, to be sure, said Mr. Woodhouse, yes, certainly. I cannot deny that Mrs. Weston, poor Mrs. Weston, does come and see us pretty often, but then she is always obliged to go away again. It would be very hard upon Mr. Weston if she did not, Papa. You quite forget poor Mr. Weston. I think indeed, said John Knightley pleasantly, that Mr. Weston has some little claim. You and I, Emma, will venture to take the part of the poor husband. I being a husband and you not being a wife, the claims of the man may very likely strike us with equal force. As for Isabella, she has been married long enough to see the convenience of putting all the Mr. Westons aside as much as she can. Me, my love, cried his wife, hearing and understanding only in part. Are you talking about me? I am sure nobody ought to be or can be a greater advocate for matrimony than I am. And if it had not been for the misery of her leaving Hartfield, I should never have thought of Miss Taylor but as the most fortunate woman in the world. And as to slighting Mr. Weston, that excellent Mr. Weston, I think there is nothing he does not deserve. I believe he is one of the very best-tempered men that ever existed. Excepting yourself and your brother, I do not know his equal for temper. I shall never forget his flying Henry's kite for him that very windy day last Easter, 
and ever since his particular kindness last September 12 month in writing that note at 12 o'clock at night on purpose to assure me that there was no scarlet fever at Cobham, I have been convinced there could not be a more feeling heart nor a better man in existence. If anybody can deserve him, it must be Miss Taylor. Where is the young man? said John Knightley. Has he been here on this occasion, or has he not? He has not been here yet, replied Emma. There was a strong expectation of his coming soon after the marriage, but it ended in nothing, and I have not heard him mentioned lately. But you should tell them of the letter, my dear, said her father. He wrote a letter to poor Mrs. Weston to congratulate her, and a very proper, handsome letter it was. She showed it to me. I thought it very well done of him indeed. Whether it was his own idea, you know, one cannot tell. He is but young, and his uncle, perhaps. My dear papa, he is three and twenty. You forget how time passes. Three and twenty? Is he indeed? Well, I could not have thought it, and he was but two years old when he lost his poor mother. Well, time does fly indeed, and my memory is very bad. However, it was an exceeding good pretty letter and gave Mr. and Mrs. Weston a great deal of pleasure. I remember it was written from Weymouth and dated September 28th and began, My dear madam, but I forget how it went on, and it was signed F.C. Weston Churchill. I remember that perfectly. How very pleasing and proper of him cried the good-hearted Mrs. John Knightley. I have no doubt of his being a most amiable young man, but how sad it is that he should not live at home with his father. There is something so shocking in a child's being taken away from his parents and natural home. I never could comprehend how Mr. Weston could part with him. To give up one's child, I really never could think well of anybody who proposed such a thing to anybody else. Nobody ever did think well of the Churchills, I fancy, observed Mr. John Knightley coolly. But you need not imagine Mr. Weston to have felt what you would feel in giving up Henry or John. Mr. Weston is rather an easy, cheerful-tempered man than a man of strong feelings. He takes things as he finds them and makes enjoyment of them somehow or other, depending, I suspect, much more upon what is called society for his comforts, that is, upon the power of eating and drinking and playing whist with his neighbours five times a week than upon family affection or anything that home affords. Emma could not like what bordered on a reflection on Mr. Weston and had half a mind to take it up, but she struggled and let it pass. She would keep the peace if possible. And there was something honourable and valuable in the strong domestic habits, the all-sufficiency of home to himself, whence resulted her brother's disposition to look down on the common rate of social intercourse and those to whom it was important. It had a high claim to forbearance. You're listening to The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away.
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin is a Realm Original production, hosted and performed by Alison Larkin, based on the novels by Jane Austen, produced by Kaylin West and Nicole Kreuter, executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap, audio editing by Corey Barton, original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, performed by Jody Redditch-Ferber and Ben Russell, musical engineering by Justin Morrell, musical supervision by Marcus Thorne-Bagala, Production management by Devin Shepard. Production coordination by Angela Yee. Cover art by Naomi Cho. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like this on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>